Well, I think, first of all, you know, one has to learn the power of the shortcut in statistics, which, you know, I tell the story about the, we had this advert when I was a kid, which, which stated eight out of 10 cats prefer a particular type of cat food. And, and we had a cat and I never remember anybody asking our cat what cat food it liked. And I thought, so it was very striking that when I got to university, I learned about the power of sampling and, and the fact that, you know, to, to be able to, there are 7 million cats here in the UK. How many cats would you have to ask to be confident enough to make that statement about? What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Artists of Data Science podcast, the only self-development podcast for data scientists. You're going to learn from and be inspired by the people, ideas, and conversations that'll encourage creativity and innovation in yourself so that you can do the same for others. I also host open office hours. You can register to attend by going to bitly.com forward slash A-D-S-O-H. I look forward to seeing you all there. Let's ride this beat out into another awesome episode. And don't forget to subscribe to the show and leave a five-star review. Our guest today is a professor of mathematics who's the author of numerous academic articles and books, as well as a radio and TV personality. His research focuses on number theory, utilizing a wide range of topics such as model theory, algebraic geometry, and analytic methods. Over the course of his career, he's received numerous awards and honors, including having been elected a fellow of the Royal Society in 2016 and the prestigious Berwick Prize by the London Mathematical Society in 2001. He's widely known for his work aimed at educating and popularizing science and mathematics and having written a number of extremely popular books making mathematics accessible to everyone, including The Music of the Primes, What We Cannot Know, The Creativity Code, and his latest book, Thinking Better, The Art of the Shortcut in Math and Life. But you might recognize him as the host of numerous documentaries for the BBC, including some of my favorites, such as The Code, Algorithms, The Secret Rules of Modern Living, and The Story of Maths. So please help me in welcoming our guest today, the Charles Simony Professor for the Public Understanding of Science at the University of Oxford, Professor Marcus Du Sartoy. Professor, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to come onto the show today. I really appreciate having you here. Absolute pleasure to be joining you and talking mathematics, science, and data, and a bit of art, hopefully, too. Yes, definitely. You know, I definitely want to get into to some of your, you know, get, get in some philosophical questions and, and things like that. But before we get into your books, that we're going to particularly talk about thinking better and then the creativity code. Let's get to know you a little bit uh, more. Talk to us about where you grew up and what it was like there. Yeah, I grew up just outside London, actually quite near Oxford, which is where I'm now a professor. Uh, I just went to a very normal state school here, but I was very lucky at school to have a teacher who, a maths teacher who kind of opened up this uh, amazing world of mathematics to me. He kind of told me that, you know, what we're doing in the classroom is not really what maths is about. It's the very technical side 
uh, of mathematics and uh, a bit like you know learning a musical instrument you're only allowed to do scales and arpeggios and and he said no there's actually really wonderful kind of music out there and he recommended a few books to me to read including one which I really recommend your listeners to check out. It's called A Mathematician's Apology by G.H. Hardy. And it's a beautiful description of what it's like to be a mathematician. And he describes it in a very creative manner and sort of called himself as a creative artist rather than a useful scientist. Yeah, sure, maths is useful for describing the world, building bridges for science, but there's also a very creative artistic side. And I think that really appealed to me. So I I really credit that teacher, Mr. Bailson, when I was about 12 or 13, for kind of giving me this key to this secret garden that for some strange reason we don't tell all our kids about. I mean, I don't know quite why uh, we don't tell our kids about Fibonacci numbers, prime numbers, multidimensional geometry, fractals, uh, infinity. You know, these are the things I started to experience. and, And it really you know, made me want to be a mathematician. And so I, I, from that point on, my kind of trajectory was, okay, I want to make my own stories in this language. So, so I went to up, up to Oxford actually as an undergraduate, I stayed on there to do my PhD. Um, and, uh, you know, I've, I've visited many universities around the world as a professor, but somehow Oxford is my home. And, and that's where I am now doing my mathematical research, creating new mathematical stories. But also, as you said in the introduction, I'm professor for the public understanding of science as well. So not just a professor of maths, but I also have this role, which I took over from Richard Dawkins. And this professorship is a bit like, I call it a bit like being an ambassador for the world of science, that science is this massive superpower now, which has a massive impact on, you know, everybody around the world. And and every kind of major superpower needs ambassadors to try and build bridges to, uh, you know, other other societies. So, so my role is kind of communicating the sort of importance of science to the public so they can engage in debate. And, and in a way, you know, it's kind of playing back for ex- inspiring me that I hope that the all the TV programs you mentioned and the books and things, maybe they will inspire the next generation of mathematicians that perhaps can prove all the things that I'm stuck on at the moment. I absolutely love that. I love that kind of viewpoint. It reminds me, I was uh, reading a, a, a The Bed of Crypt, Procrastes by Nicholas uh, Nassim Taleb. He's got he's got this quote in there. If you are approaching mathematics as if it's purely mechanical and not mystical, then you're approaching it wrong. And I, I feel like that kind of parallels what you're saying there. Yes. I mean, it does have a mechanical side, but that's sort of not the most interesting part. I think, you know, I whenever I tell kids, for example, that nature is doing mathematics, that you find maths everywhere, that bumblebees are making sorry honeybees are making their their hives in hexagonal shapes why are they choosing hexagons well there's a reason it's a kind of the 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 shape which has uses the least amount of wax to enclose that you know the the honeybee is a mathematician at heart it it tells its other fellow bees where sustenance is using this waggle dance which is basically a little bit of trigonometry turned into dance form so i think you know when you show people that well gosh mathematics is everywhere in nature and that, and that is the kind of mystical side you know wow why, why is nature why is the universe so mathematical and you know i love the galileo quote which says you know if you want to understand the universe you have to understand the language it's written in and it's written in mathematical language and uh, the words are you know circles triangles and other geometric figures and, and without which means you cannot understand 
a single world word you're like wandering around as he says in a dark labyrinth so you know th- this mathematical language is really our key to 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 sort of understanding how the universe works and that is kind of amazing and slightly mystical i mean why is the universe so mathematical that's kind of an interesting philosophical question you know yeah i mean absolutely so 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 in your in your kind of thinking and in, in the, the stance that you take so is is mathematics something that is that we've event, invented or is it something that's always been out there is this something that we've discovered but you know math is kind of just the language we use to describe it what are your, your thoughts yeah on that? well that's a really deep philosophical question and there, there's been so much discussion on, on whether you know is mathematics a human creation is it are, are we creating it or are we discovering it is it somehow got a platonic existence out there and we're just chipping away and revealing things i mean personally i am a platonist at heart so i am a believer in mathematics existing sort of outside the need for humans to sort of bring it alive so you know 17 is a prime number whether regardless of whether you've got conscious beings to to recognize that fact but that i mean i think there is this kind of platonic world out there but the stories that we then tell about that 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 mathematics you know that we've got these prime numbers we're trying to understand them but the way that we're understanding them i think that is often a reflection of our uh human psyche and our and our ways of looking at things so so i think there's a why it's such an interesting debate this one about creation discovery does this thing exist or not or are we sort of bring it bringing it to life it is because of that tension of the fact that we are making choices as mathematicians about the theorems that we get excited by and that's why many people probably think a mathematician is just like a bit of a computer churning out proofs of true statements about numbers and geometry and and actually we're doing something slightly different we're making choices about the things that we think are interesting and so that must reflect our kind of human psyche so I often compare this a wonderful short story that I love by Borges called The Library of Babel and it's about a library which contains every single book it's possible to write and so you think wow that's amazing that library contains everything but of course actually as you the story goes on you realize the library contains nothing because nobody has made choices about which things are worth writing or reading and and I think a mathematician is a little bit similar that most people think well, surely you're trying to create the mathematical library which contains proofs of all the true statements about numbers but no most of them are boring just like most of the books in the library of babel are, are just meaningless so that side i think there is a the a human side to what actually becomes the mathematics that we celebrate in the journals and our, and our seminars and things so from your viewpoint then do you think math is an art is it a science is it a combination of art and science how do you how do you view this well i think that i chose mathematics because i feel it's almost where those two rivers join that it has very much a scientific side there you know there are true statements you can't make a uh, a, a false statement true it's got a robustness about it that's you know you you just cannot um, push it around how you want it to be it is how it is it is the language which describes the universe we we know about the the fundamental particles which make up the universe because of the mathematics which describes these quarks and electrons and things on the other hand there's a highly creative side to mathematics which relates to the fact that sometimes we create 
consistent worlds in mathematics which have no relationship to our own physical universe. Now, in science, if you come up with a theory, might be a wonderful theory, but if it doesn't match the data, you throw the theory out. It's not interesting anymore. And that's why, you know, we now have a potential theory of supersymmetry. Maybe there are these other particles, but if we don't find those particles and we even find evidence that they're not there, as beautiful as that theory is, it will have to be thrown away. It's just not interesting to the scientists. But for a mathematician, we're quite happy to have independent kind of mathematical universes, which internally consistent. And we're sort of more happy with the multiverse in a way, the mathematical multiverse, that we'd be very happy with all of the different sorts of worlds. I mean, for example, in the 19th century, mathematicians came up with new sorts of geometries, spherical geometries, negatively curved geometries, which were different to the Greek Euclidean geometries. Now, only one of these geometries describes our universe. But we're interested in all of these geometries and they're, they're wonderful to play with and, and e explore. And, and I think that's, that's the kind of creative side of a mathematician. It's almost like you can write a novel and it doesn't have to be true. But if you're writing nonfiction, it has to be, you know, you can't write something which isn't true. So there's a sort of freedom in mathematics, which I think the, my other fellow colleagues in science don't have that freedom so much because they're just not... It, it, if their theory does not fit experiment, it's just thrown out. Uh, I don't care about the experiments. I, I just uh, have to make sure that my, my universes that I create are as consistent and, and they, they're all equally exciting. Speaking about like different geometries, I remember when I first, you know, heard about, read about, learned about topology, it just blew my mind. Like it's just the, the weirdest yeah. thing ever. And a little bit of synchronicity, I was watching at, at this youtube video about the gaussian curvature yesterday and gauss is one of you as you do <laughs> yes, yes. Well, well you know i'm a mathematician at, at heart i guess i didn't finish my phd but, but you know still have a, a a love for mathematics and 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 your kind of love of mathematics started with with gauss so what was it about gauss he plays kind of like the the hero of our story in in thinking better what was it about gauss that kind of you know absolutely yeah he is i mean thinking better is you know it's describes all of the different ways we come up with in mathematics to think of clever ways to solving problems. Uh, and I wanted some way to sort of have a, some glue which connected all of these stories together. And I, and I actually found that, you know, one of my heroes, Carl Friedrich Gauss, just seemed to play a part in all of these different ways of thinking. So he became a natural sort of partner in the journey through that book. And he really is the beginning of the book as well, because you know, I try and give the reader sort of a sense of what I mean by when I talk about a shortcut. You know, this is a book celebrating mathematics as an incredible suite of shortcuts to to kind of avoid you having to do hard work, boring, laborious work. And so I tell the story of the young Carl Friedrich Gauss, who's in his classroom about nine or ten, a bit younger than I was when I got excited about maths, but already the, it was clear that he was quite a, an, an amazing sort of thinker. But the teacher in the class asked the, the pupils to add up the numbers from one to a hundred. And I think the teacher thought, oh, great, that'll take them forever because, you know, they've got to add one plus two plus three, probably make lots of mistakes on the way. So I think he was trying to get a little bit of uh, shut eye, a bit of sleep. But before he even finished posing the problem. Gauss had written down a number on his little slate board and, and put it down in front of the desk or, or in front of the teacher. And I think the teacher thought he was being impudent, but when he looked at the 
number on the, uh, the chalkboard, there it was, the correct answer. And so he said, well, how did you get that so quickly? And Gao said, well, you know, all, all my fellow students are beginning at the beginning of the journey and just trying to go through all the way to 100. That's not the way to do this. There's a clever shortcut, which is you go from the beginning and the end of the journey. So you start at one and 100, and one plus 100 is 101. Two plus 99 is 101. Three plus 98 is 101. So he very quickly seen you've got 50 pairs of numbers adding up to 101. So that's 50 times 101. And he'd written very quickly down 5,050. So I think that for me captures in a beautiful little story and, and perhaps it's apocryphal and not true. I think Gauss kind of liked to tell this story later in life, show how precocious he was. But I think it really shows the essence of a mathematical way of thinking, sort of stepping back from a problem, not just going through the hard labor of adding up numbers one after another. For a start, you'll make a mistake. But this beautiful symmetry that he saw in the problem just gave him an access to solve it. Not only that, it has the beauty of that if the teacher said, well, OK, Gauss, um, I'm going to give you a problem one to a million. Well, the same trick still works. And that's what's so powerful about these mathematical shortcuts. Often it doesn't matter if the numbers get bigger and bigger. The shortcut still does its work and finds you a, a quick way to get to the solution. So, so I really thought that story captured what all the shortcuts are trying to do, which is, no, you don't want to do that hard labor of just doing sort of laborious, boring work, which can often lead to error. Step back and try and find the clever way, the shortcuts. And this is kind of celebration of extraordinary range of mathematical shortcuts we've come up with over 2000 years of creating mathematics. The thing that we do best, right? Finding patterns. Uh, I feel like that's the, the ultimate shortcut, right? Yes. I, and I, that's the, the shortcut I start with. And it's actually often when people say, well, how do you define a mathematician? I think most people think that, you know, as a research mathematician, am I doing long division to a lot of decimal places in my office? And if I am, surely hasn't a computer put you out of a job? And I say, no, that's arithmetic. And actually, most mathematicians are rubbish at arithmetic. You know, you ask, I often get asked on kind of radio stations, okay, multiply 723 by 462. And I, was, I haven't a clue, you know. <laughs> and actually, I describe a mathematician is it's about patterns, a pattern searcher. That's what a mathematician is. And, and, and somehow mathematics is the science of patterns. And I think you're right that humans have become very good at spotting patterns because it gives given us an evolutionary advantage because patterns are our access to what might happen in the future. If we have data and we can spot some sort of pattern in that data and then we can read that data into the future, we have a good chance of predicting what's going to happen next. So, so I think that that's partly why we've all evolved to be able to spot those patterns because they they're the key to our evolutionary survival very often. So it seems like patterns are kind of, or rather shortcuts, I guess it, shortcuts kind of hint at the laziness of humans. Is there, is there any virtue in human laziness? Yeah, actually, I, I think there is. And you know what? I sort of wrote this book as a, a companion book to my previous book, which you mentioned, The Creativity Code, which is all about the extraordinary power of you know, modern artificial intelligence, machine learning has just given AI, you know, an incredible 
push at the moment. I mean, we talked about, you know, AI winters for decades. You know, we're in an AI heat wave at the moment with the power of code to, to learn from data and to evolve change. And it seems incredible what this code can do. And, and that book is all about the fact that code even can be creative. It can learn to do new things. And so I did an interview with a journalist about that book. And by the end, he was so depressed. He said, well, what, what's there left for humanity of, you know, AI can even write novels and poetry and things. And I, I had to try and cheer him up because he was so depressed. So I actually thought, well, actually, I think our laziness actually might be our saving grace because you see an AI and a computer just doesn't get tired. It, it's, it can keep on working on a problem. It, it doesn't need to be lazy, but we'll, if we're faced with adding up numbers from one to a million, most of us, if we're going to do it the, the boring way, the computer doesn't mind do, doing that the hard way. But, you know, I think that we're so lazy that we go, oh, I can't be bothered to do that work. And we step back and it's that laziness that then pushes us to find some cleverer way to do this, which can, you know, mean that I can go and do something I really want to in, enjoy doing. And that's why I actually make a really important distinction at the beginning of the, the book, which is, you know, most of us actually get value from our work. It's not like I want to replace all our work because I enjoy my work as a mathematician. So, but Aristotle had a very nice description of two different sorts of work. So he talks about praxis, which is work for its own sake, work you enjoy doing, and then poesis, which is work to get to a goal. And very often it's the goal that we're interested in and we're not interested in in the work getting to the goal. And the shortcuts are trying to get you to your goal quickly enough that you can then do the work that you really enjoy. So so I, I think that, you know, I'm looking for the, yeah, so I think idleness is important because it often says, I, I don't want to do this boring work. I want to do the work I really enjoy. So so my shortcuts are trying to to give you those techniques to say, okay, oh, I can avoid doing all this hard work and get on with what I really love doing. Yeah, I think Aristotle calls it that, that not necessarily idleness, but noble leisure, I think is what he-, he Noble leisure, I like that, leisure. yes, yes. Speaking of like, creativity and putting you out of a job, uh, <laughs> apparently, <laughs> apparently some of your book was written by uh, GPT-3. Has anybody figured out which paragraph that was yet? It's absolutely true. It wasn't actually GPT-3 because oh. I, I think, and I think GPT-3 is actually incredibly impressive. I mean, I, I actually wrote a review for a book that has been co-written between an artist and GPT-3. And it's it's quite an extraordinary sort of stream of consciousness, both by the artist, but also in a way, trying to understand the, the subconscious of GPT-3. But I used another piece of software and it's extraordinary because not even my editor who, who edited, she still hasn't identified the passage that wasn't written by me. And I've had one person who's written to me because I offered a bottle of wine from my college in Oxford um, as a prize. And I have, I've only had in whole of this time, I've had a lot of people suggesting bits. Only one has identified the passage. Actually, I find deeply depressing because, you know, I think it's so obvious. It's so badly written. It's slightly incoherent and and if this means that does that mean that all my writing is so it's interesting it you know i gave it a very specific story that there was a lot of data on the internet that it could plunder to tell the story and it did tell the story in its own particular way and 
The other thing was I had to be very strict with my copy editor not to correct all the slightly strange punctuation and grammar because I thought that was important to keep in as well. So, so it, it it is also slightly weirdly the, the grammar is slightly weird as well. But it is extraordinary how. You know, but there is there was a restriction in this because it was only three hundred and fifty words, and I think that's. Uh, a really important point because I think GPT three, for example, which is kind of the gold standard now of text generation, it is very good short form prose, and it can really ha have quite a sort of stimulating ideas. And but what it isn't able to do is is the long term kind of narrative. So this book that I reviewed, it's very interesting from sort of page to page. But by the end of a chapter or end of the the actual the whole book you really feel like it's just meandering it isn't going anywhere and i think that's that's the issue at the moment the ai is very good at locally generating things so for example in music as well it's very good at you know improvising jazz where it listens to a human playing and then can respond to that but you know after about 5 minutes of a ai jazz improviser everything just gets really boring because you just don't feel there's a, an overarching narrative so I think AI at the moment is having a little bit of difficulty sort of with the concept of time, interestingly. So it doesn't understand a sort of global structure. It can do things locally. That said, of course, it was very successful in playing the game of Go against Lee Sedol, and that required a kind of making moves which had implications deep in the game. So it's not like it can't uh, connect things early on to things later. So the, the reason that the kind of moves that it made that we now call a very creative move 37 game two, everyone celebrates as this extraordinary move that it made in, in this match against Lisa Doll. That move was very early on in the game. I had big implications later. So it can think ahead, but in the creative side, I'm not seeing that really happening. Yeah, it's interesting. AI having trouble with time, I guess, for entity for lack of a better word that's not really counting any age what would time really mean to it right that's uh... yeah i mean and that's that i mean I, I think this relates of course to you know very deep philosophical problems about consciousness because you know i think one of the qualities of consciousness that we have is our ability to see ourselves in the future you know where we can do mental time travel because of our conscious minds and that means that we can actually uh, see that we will die sometime in the future. And I think you know, a lot of art is about, and creativity is a reaction to that. And and I think that's right at the moment. I think my my iPhone doesn't realize that it's you know got a very short lifespan and will be dead in two years time. So I think that at the moment, one of the things which is sort of we're not seeing is a response to uh, a consciousness yet because uh, i don't think it is conscious but and i think you know that's actually when i talk in the creativity code book i i do talk about creativity being our tool that we developed as a species to explore our inner worlds and to explore other people's inner worlds you know is your pain anything like my pain are you seeing the world like i do so i think that we will start to see really interesting creativity emerging when I think AI becomes conscious and, and you know, that's going to be a key moment. When will we know that this is not just simulation anymore, but there's something really going on. And I think it's creative output will probably be our, the key to, Hey, I, I think something new is happening inside this. And so. Yeah. It's a fascinating question to ponder and think about, but 
we, we can go down a rabbit hole for that one. But speaking, <laughs> yes. speaking of, of creativity, you took time during this pandemic to write a play. How's that coming along? Oh, it's going terrifically, actually. I, I've been working on the play today. I mean, I've worked a lot with theatre companies. So one of my big passions is theatre. So I worked with Complicité, a theatre company here in, in England, and I met an actress there and we we did a play together, which um, we put on a couple of years ago at the Barbican. But so I, I love using theatre as a way of exploring kind of scientific and philosophical ideas. So yeah, during the, the lockdown, I finished my book thinking better early because my diary just got gutted of all my commitments. And so I handed it into my editor and my editor said, oh my gosh, you writers are loving lockdown because you're all become so productive. I've got novels I haven't even commissioned. So, so she said, I'm not going to be able to read your book for another couple of months. So I thought, okay, I had this idea for a play. It's about a mathematician. One of my heroes of the 20th century, a mathematician called André Vey, French mathematician who worked in number theory and did amazing things about things called elliptic curves, proved a Riemann hypothesis for elliptic curves rather than for the prime numbers. He was hoping for the primes one, but he had a really fascinating life. And so the play is exploring his life, but it's also a play exploring whether whether we any have any choices in our lives, you know, the idea of free will, do we really have free will or is everything actually determined as, you know, Laplace's demon basically says, well, if I know how everything is set up, everything else is, you know, just follows from the equations. Maybe quantum physics says that that's not true. So there, there does seem to be indeterminacy, but is that true at a kind of our our life level so so the play is sort of exploring the the kind of choices that this mathematician made in his life and, and why he made them so and i yeah so i've actually got a, a group of actors together four actors uh, a director and a producer and we're going to put it on in london in february at a festival here which is a kind of uh, a theater festival in london so so yeah it's really going uh, uh, well and it's very exciting i hope maybe you bring it over to america once it once we get it up and running that definitely sounds like a play that I would very, very much be interested in in watching. So I'm I'm excited that for that to come over to. Us. We have this annual festival here in my city, Winnipeg, called the Fringe Festival. I know there's a equivalent of that in the UK somewhere. Yeah, well. in Edinburgh, exactly. And actually, yeah. this festival in London is uh, our London Fringe. So oh, yeah, nice. great. Well, Winnipeg, here we come. Well, if you need a place to stay, Professor, my house is uh, <laughs> open for you. Uh, speaking of, of like, I guess, fictional characters, at, at the time of this recording, Halloween is upon us. So you shared a story in the book about how we can use math to fight off vampires. I'd yeah. uh, love it. I'd love it if you could recount that story. Uh, oh, I like what you did there. Very good. Yes. Well, actually, I... Uh... I always have two characters that I dress up for in Halloween. It's my favorite festival of the year. And I'm either, uh, because I've now got no hair on my head, I can cover myself in orange paint. And so I either become a pumpkin head or I become a vampire because vampires, they they have an interesting kind of condition, which is called arrhythmomania. And this, you know, everyone knows the kind of classic ways to kind of fend off a vampire, crosses, garlic, mirrors and things. But what people might not know is that one strategy is to throw a lot of rice or poppy seeds down on the ground because vampires just have this addiction to counting. So they just see all of these, these grains of rice and they just cannot 
stop counting the grains of rice and then you've got a chance to to kind of escape and and this is a well-known condition and it's a tesla for example was meant to suffer from arithmomania and just had this obsession with counting things and so people might have grown up on Sesame Street and remember the vampire that is responsible for teaching kids to count. And he's called Count Von Count. And that is absolutely picking up on this idea that vampires seem to, to, to love counting. But there's also a very interesting mathematical explanation for why actually there can't be any vampires. And, and this is actually a little story I used during the pandemic to try and explain to kids about exponential growth and the impact of a virus and how it can explode very quickly just from a small number of people. So, you know, a vampire has to feed on on human flesh every month. So, but once the vampire bites the human, the, the human becomes a vampire. So, you know, by the second month, you've got two vampires which need to feed again. So, they double up to four. So, each month, you're doubling the number of vampires on the planet. And in a little puzzle for people, you know, how, how many months or years would it take for the whole planet to become vampires? So, I mean, it's quite unexpectedly small number. It's like in the order of 35 months or something uh, that this is the power of doubling, that it looks very innocent to start with, two, four, eight, sixteen. 16. Well, you know, it's going to take ages to get to the whole planet. But then you suddenly see this exponentiation kicking in. And that's what we've seen with these graphs of, of the pandemic. Uh, and I think, you know, still we see the same mistakes being made by politicians that they, they don't understand that the early part of the graph is also exponential. And they, they say, oh, it's going to become exponential. They don't understand it's already climbing. It's, yeah, small numbers again in this new phase, but it's going to go the same way. I mean, how many times do you need to see this pattern before you understand exponential growth? So, you know, uh, if it only takes like 35 months for the whole planet to become vampires, either we are all vampires already or there, there wasn't an initial one. I mean, just get get a checkerboard, bag of rice, and double each uh, square, right? That's uh, pretty much. That's it. the the beautiful yeah. story of this. The reward that the king gave for the the guy who invented chess is the the rice on the chessboard, exactly. So uh, appreciate that so much. That story is uh, awesome. Thank you very much, Professor. So I want to get back to your book, Thinking Better, which is a, a great book. I urge you guys to to pick it up. I think it comes out in just a couple of days, uh, at least here in Canada, it comes out on the 29th. And I think some topics that would be really relevant to to my audience is, is talking about shortcuts with probability statistics and, and with data. So you know, shortcuts aren't always really pathways to knowledge. Sometimes they could lead us astray, right? Mm. So what are some dangers of, of using statistical shortcuts that we should be on high alert for? Well, I think, first of all, you know, one has to learn the power of the shortcut in statistics, which, you know, I tell the story about the we had this advert when I was a kid, which which stated eight out of 10 cats prefer a particular type of cat food. And and we had a cat and I never remember anybody asking our cat what cat food it likes. So it was very striking that when I got to university, I learned about the power of sampling and the fact that, you know, to, to be able to, there are 7 million cats here in the UK. How many cats would you have to ask to be confident enough to make that statement about eight out of 10, 10 cats prefer this particular type of food? And it's really small. I mean, it's very surprising. It's in the order of like 250 cats. Well, 19 out of 20 times that sample will give you within 5% of the true value in that 7 million cats. That's amazing. So that's an extraordinary shortcut, which gives you access to understanding a large 
data set from a small sample. The danger, of course, is uh, are you sure that you're sampling this truly randomly? And this is something, you know, probably all your listeners know already, but, you know, there's the classic story of the the, the poll or uh, trying to ask people what they're going to vote in the US election in the 50s or something like that. And they they did a telephone poll. Now, they bias their sample because only rich people could afford telephones in those days. And, and so they didn't realize they weren't getting a, a, a good representative um, sample of, of the whole population. So I think this is the real danger with, you know, there's a real power to sampling to be able to get access to what's happening in a big data set. But how do you make sure that you're really randomly sampling it? And there's a very interesting example about this because I talk about the wisdom of the crowd, you know, the power of tapping into the crowd to help you solve a problem. I mean, that's a really powerful shortcut when we use uh, quite a lot now in science because we have a thing called citizen science. So, so I think you know that that's really uh, interesting to to be able to tap into using the crowd to do that. But again, you want to make sure that your crowd is not somehow specially chosen for their in order to get wisdom you sort of need a multiplicity of kind of backgrounds and things like this so there's a very interesting thing which has emerged called participatory budgeting so governments some governments have tried and i think actually a government in canada a region in canada tried this but they said okay we're not just going to let our politicians decide this let's let the public try and help us make decisions. So we're going to use the wisdom of the crowd to try and help us make decisions. And, and the, the diversity of the crowd should help us. But in some places, so in Iceland, they tried this uh, and they invited people to come and take part. But of course, they got a very biased crowd that came in that had you know very specific political views. They weren't representative of the general public. And so I think the place in Canada which tried this said, actually, we're going to change this. We're going to make this like being a, a juror. We're going to send out letters which demand that you come. And so we randomly sent out letters and it's your civic obligation to take part. And this then enabled the crowd that gathered to, to take part in the participatory budgeting actually to be much more diverse because it wasn't self-selecting. And then you got a crowd which was wise and made very interesting kind of new political decisions. So so I think that's the big issue with all of this use of data is, you know, have you got a bias in there? And, and that is absolutely the big problem with artificial intelligence at the moment, that quite often bad data in, bad decisions out. Uh, and there's lots of examples. And in the AI book, I talk about one in particular, a, a woman that I... Uh, did an event with who's at MIT Media Lab, and she was had some some robots which had some vision set recognition software that she was interested to use. But when she got these robots out and started trying to interact with them, they just didn't recognize that she was in front of them. And then she got some other people in the lab to come in, and the robots responded to them. And then she suddenly realized, oh my gosh, I'm the only black woman in this lab. And the and then when she lifted up the bonnet and looked at the data that had been given to the vision recognition software, it was all white men. I mean, notable women even. So th this is really important in going forward because we are training our AI on data, because we are using sort of statistical sampling all the time. We need to introduce measures which make sure that we know there's no bias in there, which is difficult, you know, because we have our own biases. So, and the 
interesting thing is that we're now beginning to see AI being used to help us to understand that there are biases in the data, that often they can pick up the, the, the strange kind of anomalies that we're missing because we're kind of slightly blind to these biases. Yeah, it's interesting. You make that the point in, in thinking better as well, that data science can be dangerous if it's not combined with a deep understanding of where the data comes from. Yes. I, and, and I think, you know, that there's been such a surge of big data as a way of doing science that I, I think what I'm slightly nervous of is that we might find ourselves just being wooed by the data so much that we don't we forget to ask what well why is there this interesting connection which the data seems to have emerged you know the, the correlation may not be causation so we, we maybe there's a third thing that we don't understand so i think we're big data has become so powerful and it has given us amazing new insights i'm not saying it's you know some really important things which it's revealed but i think we we need to combine that still with a that kind of analytic way of thinking and asking yeah so why is that connection not just being satisfied with having found a connection now ask why it's there so yeah it seems like you know probabilistic kind of or, or statistics statistical intuition is something that we don't come equipped with right out of the the womb so i guess why is it that our that our brains aren't very good at assessing probabilities i think because actually we don't have a very good evolutionary experience of large numbers so you know, beyond a hundred, everything is sort of infinite in a way. I mean, uh, we we're able to, you know, we have a hundred probably close friends or something. But I don't think we just have a, an evolutionary experience of numbers in the order of a million. I mean, for most people, a million is is infinite. So if you say a one in a million chance, that's that for most people means a certainty. But you know, if you take, for example, a, a legal case and uh, you've got a, a, somebody who's a, a suspect and it comes back that their DNA, there's a one in a million chance that, you know, their DNA matches the DNA at the crime scene. Well, for most people, one in a million means that person has done it. But if you think London, we have 10 million people here. So actually that means there are 10 people in London whose DNA match the DNA at the crime scene. So now this one is one out of 10 well, that's a very different statistic. And so I just don't think people um, really understand large numbers, which is what means that we that that we just just don't have a probabilistic instinct and we don't uh, we, we find identifying risk re really difficult. And that's why we do need these tools of mathematics to 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 replace the fact that we don't have an intuition for these things. So, so th that's the amazing thing. Mathematics has been able to, to give us a, a way of assessing what will happen in the long run if you do the, an experiment so many times. And, and, and it reveals very counterintuitive things. That's the other, uh, I think, important point is that probability is the results are very counterintuitive. But here's a little question for your uh, listeners. Uh, you know, if I... How many people do I need to have in a room for, for it to be more than likely that two people in that room have the same birthday? Now, first of all, what people do is think, well, gosh, must be, you must need a lot. Maybe you need 180 because, you know, that then I might have. But of course, they're already thinking, what's the probability somebody has my birthday? So you personalize the thing and you don't understand that actually the question is, 
Well, yeah, but there are, there are other ways of pairing it up with, you know, the number of pairs you can make in that room means that very quickly you actually get uh, a good chance of there being two people with the same birthday. So rather unexpectedly, only 23 people are needed in the room for for the, more than likely to have two people the same birthday. And that, for most people, go, 23? And I've done this experiment. It's quite fun. What's your birthday, by the way? Maybe we have the same birthday. May 17th. May 17th. You see, there's a one in 365 chance that we too have the same birthday. But, you know, if we actually invite more of your listeners on, it'd be amazing that by 23, we'll probably more than likely have two people the same birthday. That's That's very counterintuitive. Yeah. Yeah. I do this uh, thing every Friday. It's called a, a data science happy hour where a bunch of people just come into a Zoom call just like this and we 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 talk about things. I think that might be something to to test out during that absolutely uh, nice yeah. happy hour. So kind of Im- implicit in the example that you're talking about with the uh, with the DNA testing and you know one in a million chance and and ten people, it you know implicit in that I think is is based there. So why is it that that some people find that shortcut that Reverend Bayes discovered so controversial? Yes, it's it's very interesting because, I mean, again, I suppose it's because it's very counterintuitive for a start. I mean, there, there, there is a whole philosophy about what we mean by probability. So th- this is this is part of the discussion when you when it, and you get into sort of discussions of a kind of Bayesian philosophy of probability. I mean, if I if I toss a coin now and I you know, I have it on my hand and I look at the coin and I can see it's a head. But so for me, I've got certainty about the, the, the way this has landed. But for you, you will, you've got uncertainty and you will assign a number to that, even though the thing is one thing or the other, but we are assigning a, a probability to that. Now, some people find that sort of controversial, even from the, the outset, because we're not talking about something in the future. It, it's now happened. It is either heads or it's tails. But you assign a number to this, which is just a measure of your lack of knowledge about what uh, the situation is. But so as more data comes in, you can reassess um, those values that you're giving to the data. And that is, in a sense, what Bayes' theorem is about. It's a, it's a little formula which you calculate in order to, to re establish what the value you're going to give to a particular outcome given um, this new information about the data. So I don't think it's particularly controversial when you look at actually just the mathematical formula. It totally makes sense. But often what it is, is it's counterintuitive because it's the sort of thing which helps you to understand these false positive results, which people find very difficult to understand. You know, um, it's Amongst a thousand people, you know, one in a thousand will have cancer, but there's a negative result in 90, uh, 10% of the time. If you get a negative result, then then you think you might have a positive result. You, you think you might have cancer. But when you look at the data and, and you, you realize that the probabilities, although you think, oh, my gosh, I'm 90% certain to have cancer. But the, the numbers, you kind of forget the, the base rate that, oh, actually, it's very unlikely I have cancer because only one in a thousand have cancer. They, these kind of formulas just help you to kind of undo all of this complexity of these kind of false positives and things. And and I think once you look at the formulas, it becomes less controversial, really. When in doubt, just put it into a confusion matrix and try to convince yourself, right? And, <laughs> and see what happens. So I'm, I'm curious, like you, you talked about that philosophical view of, of probability. Is it is it the frequentist approach, the Bayesian approach? Like, I'm, I'm curious, how do you view 
probability. What's your your take on that? Well, I mean, I I go back to right at the beginning. I mean, I think Fermat and Pascal, I think, started us on our journey to say, you know, there we do have tools to be able to assess likelihood of what might happen in the in the future. And and I think, you know, that that's the beginning of probability for me is yeah, yeah. You you look at all the different possibilities, and then you look at the the subset of those that you're interested in, and, and that gives you a very good number, a way of mathematizing uncertainty. And so, that for me is is really the the basis of, of this whole thing. And and then the interesting thing is when you come to something, you know, then has happened. Yeah, I think there's something slightly controversial about. Uh, well, why are we still assigning a a kind of fraction to this, you know, it's either, you know, is that still a valid way? Yeah. Fermat and Pascal were interested in some games of dice and things where you don't know what's going to happen next and, and how to decide what your best wager will be. And, you know, in that case, yeah, you do want to know, uh, okay, each individual role I can't predict, but in the long term, a casino will take advantage of the fact that they know that, you know, 52% of the time they're going to be winning and that's enough for them to to make money out of that. So so I think that you know, it's not my area of expertise so you know I think that there are there are definitely you know really interesting philosophical discussions to be be had around that. And and actually I do recommend a colleague of mine David Spiegelhalter who's he's sort of my sort of partner you know i'm the professor for the public understanding of science in oxford he's the professor for the public understanding of risk in cambridge and you know i think this is a, you know, both of them are really important roles science is having a big impact on society and being able to just assess risk is obviously important and and he's he's the person i've listened to most on probability and really respect his kind of opinions and i, I think he is a, well, I let him speak for himself uh, if you have him on, but I think he's a Bayesian at heart, but he, he'll probably be able to um, justify what that, <laughs> whether yeah. that's true or not. I'm definitely a Bayesian through and through as well. I mean, I might have to tap you for an introduction to uh, Dr. Spiegelhalter because- uh, Pleasure. Yeah, uh, we'll do. Yeah, it'll be a pleasure to speak to him. Uh, so let's get into some some topics in, in your your penultimate book here. I guess, is that the right word? I don't know. Uh, the creativity. Yeah. So in the book, you talk about, so a lot of us in machine learning field, we- all kind of familiar with like the, the Turing test, right? But you talk about something here called the Lovelace test. So mm. talk to us about this. What What is the Lovelace test and in what ways is it different from the Turing test? Yeah, so people probably know Ada Lovelace because we celebrate her as the first computer coder and we, we celebrate Lovelace Day every October, I think it is. And she very interestingly, when she went to see this analytic engine that Charles Babbage had made to, to do calculations, began to speculate that, well, this thing can do more interesting things than just calculating. And she started writing instructions for it to, to do more interesting things. And that, those notes that she made is, is what we celebrate as kind of first idea of code. But already in those notes, she was speculating that, well, maybe this machine can do really interesting things like compose music of a kind of scientific nature. But she has a word of caution. She says, yeah, but we won't really call the the machine the creative one because it's the human who wrote the code, which we should really credit as having been the creator. The, the machine just implemented the ideas of the human. But it led to this idea of, okay, yeah, so 
most of the time it will be the human who's sort of really the creative one. The machine is just implementing the ideas. But maybe we'll get to a point where somebody will write some code. And this is the point about machine learning. The code starts to change and mutate. And so it becomes something different from the original code that the human wrote. Could we get to a stage where the code is actually now producing results, which the the coder, original coder, human coder, doesn't understand how, how it's making those decisions. And so, for example, if it starts to make music and the human can't explain where the kind of music came from in the code, then do we need to call the code now the, the creator of this music rather than the human who kind of started it off on its journey? And so the Lovelace test is a challenge, which is, you know, can a computer create a, a piece of work, uh, an art creative a uh, piece of work which the original human coder cannot explain how it made it and another important point you know a lot of creativity projects in coding sort of tap into using random number generators to try and trick people into thinking there's some agency in the code and it's really important in the lovelace test that you don't resort to something external like a random number generator or what the state of the weather or the stock market is because that is something equally the code can't explain. As a, it, it needs to be a product of the code, so not a randomness from outside. And, and so that's why, actually, rather than you know, I think creative projects in the past would often tap into randomness to try and give the code some agent seeming agency. But what is now being tapped into is ideas of chaos theory, actually, that, you know, we can write code which becomes so complex that very small changes can send it in, in, in new directions. So the, the output of the code is a product of the code. It's deterministic, but it's because of this sensitivity to small changes, it means that it's very hard to predict what it's going to do and, it, and actually reverse engineer what it's going to do. So that Lovelace challenge is, you know, machine learning is now giving us a chance to, to have code which mutates so much that it starts to, to make decisions that the human can't really explain quite why it's making those decisions. And so that's why we're getting, I think, output which really is passing that Lovelace test of, you no, know, the creativity is now the creativity of the code, not the original human who coded it. And yeah, I think- so it, fascinating, so fascinating. Well, it's, I think an interesting- uh, thing to compare this with is what about our own human creativity we are a product of the dna of our parents our, that fusion of code the, the two dna of our parents produces our code but we're like a little machine learning thing we then have the impact of our environment and and we change and mutate and epigenetics turn on various things and turn other things down and so you know picasso's output we would never say is the you know, the creativity of the parents of Picasso. Yeah, it's a contributing factor, but actually very small compared to the environmental effects of Picasso's experience of being an artist in the world. And I think we'll get to the stage where uh, machine learning is producing code that really needs to, to be credited as a creator in its own right and have really had less and less to do with the, the original code that was written from, from which it started learning. 
Yeah, these generative models are really, really fascinating. Uh, so a couple of colleagues that I work with, real, brilliant, brilliant, you know, deep learning researchers, and they've we've implemented something where it's uh, it's called clip draw, where you just type in a prompt, and it'll draw the picture. And then my other colleague is working on you know generative jazz and and doing all this crazy stuff. It's it's really fascinating stuff. I mean, yeah. for me, that that is the most interesting bit of this whole story is these generative adversarial networks, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. you know sort of tap into the kind of gaming quality that. AI is so good at, you know, give it a, a game to play and and it does it very well. So, you know, the game here is each algorithm plays against the other one, trying to trick it into producing something new or, or something within the, yeah, so these artistic things, I think they're the ones for me that are genuinely pushing the output into something interestingly new rather than just being copies of things we've seen already. You know, AI is very good at producing Rembrandts or Bach uh, suites, but what we really want is it to take us into the new. And I think the generative adversarial networks for me are actually mimicking what the human brain does. Uh, I mean, the human brain has this kind of bubbly creative side, but also uh, a discriminator side. And it's the kind of fusion of the two, which, you know, keeps us in check. So we're not, we're not going wild and doing crazy things but still is creative enough to to take us somewhere new. So so I, I think for me, those generative adversarial networks are, are the most exciting thing I've seen. Absolutely. And you know, and I'm interested to see kind of the the interplay between I guess just the ability for for GANs to augment human creativity. But I guess, you know, what what is creativity in the first place? Like how how would you define that? You talk about a few different types of creativity in your book as well. Yeah. Well, I like this definition or that sort of starts the book because it's quite user-friendly, which is it's got to be new, surprising, and have value. And that will define something as creative. And that that's you know fairly simplistic, but I think it sort of captures that creativity needs to engage the emotions. So that surprise thing. So it's not just creating something new that's very boring, but it's also it can't be just surprise for shock's sake. You know, it, it has to have some sort of value. So it, it sort of feeds back and 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 pushes you know humanity on in some way but I, I i actually yeah and then i talk about three different sorts of creativity which are actually an idea that margaret bowden a cognitive scientist came up with and and i i think this is quite interesting because it helps us to understand you know what ai might be good at creatively and what it might have trouble with and so these three types are exploratory creativity which is pushing the rules of the game to the absolute extreme so something like bach being the ultimate of composer of the baroque period just explore exploring the potential of baroque music to its absolute limits i think that's something a computer does very well pushing things to its limits then you've got combinational creativity which is a kind of fusion of two different styles so for example fusion cooking might be uh, an example where you take the ingredients of japan but you cook it in a french way or 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 maybe you know actually i did a project just recently where the composer where we wrote a string quartet together. It's called Four Musical Proofs and a Conjecture. So that was a kind of fusion of, I explained some proofs to her and then she interpreted those proofs musically. So it was kind of fusion. So actually AI is quite good at that because often it can take, say, a visual and and make it into music because once it takes it into digital language, it doesn't really know whether this was a picture or, or a a piece of music so it's actually able to be much more fluid between 
seemingly very different genres. The third creativity is the real challenging one for AI because this is transformational creativity where you you see something new appear almost from nothing and it's it's a the game changer the phase change and and the breaking of a system so for example picasso breaking the way art was done with cubism or or schoenberg throwing away a harmonic structure and working within a 12 tone um scale these i think these are the exciting moments because they're the really rare ones and i think many people thought well how could ai ever be transformational like that because it's stuck within a system how can it break the system and come out of itself but you know i think even that one because if you think about it well there is a rule there which is break the rules and see what happens and you know we do that in mathematics a lot we might be interested in a structure but but I'll, i'll actually remove one of the conditions and see whether anything new emerges out of that and you know that's where imaginary numbers came from some Somebody said, hey, you know, I know all numbers when you, when you square them are positive, but wouldn't it be amazing if there was one which when you square it was negative? And most people say, well, that, that's breaking the rule. You know, we're not allowed to do that. But eventually somebody said, I think this is really going to unleash a new idea. And sure enough, you know, we couldn't do quantum physics without imaginary numbers. So, so I think that's the challenge. Can, can AI break out of the system and break the rules? And in a way, the generative adversarial networks, I think, will have a little bit of that quality because the the sort of creator algorithm is tasked with trying very often to break style. You know, it's trying to show, make something which does not fit into a category that we've seen before. And the discriminator is either saying, yeah, no, I, I recognize this. You haven't moved far enough or or you've gone too far. So, So I think... Even transformational creativity is something that an AI can do. Speaking of music, you guys should check out the YouTube video with Professor Dussault Trois and, and and the Philharmonic Orchestra, I believe it was, in at Oxford University. You looked, they explored Baroque and, and math. It was very, very beautiful and, and well put together. So I'll link to that in the show notes. Excellent. So I, I guess, is creativity something that can be taught then if we're teaching like, let's say, GANs and, and things, you know, machines to, to be creative, like how about for us humans? Is this something that we can teach? Yeah. In a way, I think that's partly why I enjoyed writing that book, because I was trying to understand my own creative process as a mathematician and what what the tools that I use to, to kind of make new things. And, you know, I have that very often with my PhD students that they come along, they're having to go into the, the unknown for the first time. What are the skill sets I can equip them with to be able to to come up with something genuinely new, which is what they have to do to get their PhD. And I, I did recognize, for example, that combinational creativity is one that I use a lot in mathematics. So for example, I go along to a lot of talks in areas not related to my own, because what I find is that um, I suddenly see a way of looking at the world that they have, which uh, is helping them to understand their structures, but I can adapt it and bring it into my own field and suddenly see a new way of doing things. So in your introduction, you you mentioned the different kind of skills I use, and that that's very much part of my creativity is is saying, okay, I'm going to take, I'm interested in understanding symmetry, but I'm going to take this tool from number theory, which was used to understand prime numbers, and actually I can I can use that perspective to to not look at primes but look at symmetries instead, and and suddenly I've got new insights. So so that kind of combinational creativity is one that I encourage my students to you know just go out and 
expose yourself to different ways of thinking because that will bleed into a new way of thinking for you. I absolutely love that. Like combinatorial creativity is kind of my my go to method of creativity. I I've, I've been like learning and thinking a lot about creativity. Some book that you might enjoy is that this one. I'm not sure if you read it. Chase Chance and Creativity. It's quite an old book by James Austin, MD. And in this book, he just talks about you know the various types of luck, as well as what creativity looks like in research. So yeah, definitely one I would highly recommend. Well, I think that's very interesting that you know the role of luck, but I think you know it does seem time and again that people seem to be very lucky when they stumble on a structure but actually i think that often covers up a huge amount of groundwork that they've done to to give themselves the chance of having that luck it's a bit like yeah if you only buy one lottery ticket your chances are very low of winning but if you if you buy many and 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 you know have a then then you upping your chances so you know that that's why hard work is a lot of the work that you do as a researcher goes nowhere but you have to put that in. But you, nobody ever talks about that because it's not, you know, that's never mentioned in the journal papers or in the talk you give. But I think we need to sometimes be a bit more honest about the, the amount of failure that we go through in order to make the breakthroughs. Yeah, that's something he talks about in the book, the, the four types of luck. There's, you know, type one luck, which is dumb luck, blind luck. Type two luck is the luck that you get just from, uh, you know, just persistence, hard work, hustle, motion. Uh, type three luck is the type of luck you get just by going really deep into a field that you're able to see things on the horizon that other people may not recognize and then type four luck is the luck where you just become really well known for something and and develop some type of a brand or some type of reputation so that luck finds you um <laughs> luck finds you that's nice yeah yeah, yeah. but i think uh, that's right i like that third type which is i, I think why in you know, immersing yourself in a world such that you start to get an intuition for it and that's you know as a mathematician you know i spend a lot of time immersed in my world because it's very alien it's you know i work in symmetrical spaces which are you know very high dimensional but the more time i spend there the more i get a feel for where something is and how to get there and and that you you and and that's interesting when we come to ai because Actually, I think that, you know, one of the reasons mathematics is done sometimes very by very young people is that they can get a maturity in mathematics because they, you know, they're, they're nerds and spend all their time doing maths. Actually, they can actually get a maturity, which means that they get these insights, become able to navigate the mathematical world. And I think in a way, AI, I mean, I talk about the, the potential for AI to do mathematics in the creativity code book. And at the moment, I don't think it's doing interesting maths, but I think very soon it will have immersed itself in enough of mathematics to be able to start to get a feel for, for where to look for the next thing, because mathematics is quite a young subject. We've only really been doing it for 2000 years. But, you know, if you think about music or visual art, now that is very ancient. We've been doing that for uh, as a species really for you know hundreds of thousands of years so so i think that it's possible that an ai could get a maturity and get that kind of third sort of luck and and start sort of feeling what what might be going on in this world yeah absolutely lovely i think we take for granted how new some of the stuff that we have conjured up really is in the grand scheme of our history yeah. as, as humans so the, the, there's a statement you made in the book about how did 
you know, moving from deterministic foolproof algorithms to probabilistic ones is like a significant psychological shift that is like moving from a mathematician's mindset to an engineer's mindset. I, I spent some time reflecting on that, just trying to understand what it was that you meant by that. Like, what's the, can you elaborate on the statement? What is it about a mathematician's mindset that is, you know, deterministic and, and foolproof and, you know, an engineer's that's the other way? Well, I think one of the things that we have really going for us in mathematics is the power of mathematical proof to to get certainty and that is a very rare i don't think any other subject i mean i don't think any other science can really be confident that they their theory will not be overturned at some point by new evidence but the you know the mathematics that was discovered by the ancient greeks 2000 years ago is as true today as it was when Euclid proved these theorems or Pythagoras, the, the science is, is very different. So the way you do science is, you know, I, I think a whole different process of building up evidence to support your theory, experiment, replicability, but you will never know that there isn't the black swan on the other side of the world, which means you have to rewrite your theory. And so, so I think the mathematician's mindset is, is very addicted to the power of proof because it means that once a theorem is in the literature we can build on that so everybody is sort of building on you know as newton said on the shoulders of giants we are building this edifice of mathematics and we can be confident that the layer that we're putting in will be secure because of the proofs in the past so now there's the kind of challenge of okay but what if we introduce a kind of more uh, a style of mathematics which with with less certainty to it. So, for example, if if you're using AI and AI is making suggestions, and and so you you might actually have part of the proof done by AI, but you're not quite sure whether the you know there are there bugs in the code. But you know, should should we perhaps be changing the style of the way we do mathematics to sort of accommodate these new tools? And I think m many mathematicians are very loath to give up the the security of mathematical proof in exchange for a sort of more probabilistic experimental evidential approach to to the subject because you know we've valued us our certainty so much up to this point but maybe we're reaching a point where the complexity of the subject is such that we we may have to to change the way we we do things so, so I, I think we're at a challenging a uh, point where you know maybe we've got as far as we can with the this kind of addiction to certainty and maybe we have to to change the way we do maths I, I i don't know i think it's 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 challenging the role that machine learning will play uh, as a collaborator in, in this process I absolutely love that and and while you're talking i just makes me want to get into some 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 incompleteness theorem topics but but we are we're running short on time i want to be respectful of your time i know it is quite late there so let's begin to wrap it up uh, do, you, do you have an extra five minutes to get into a random round okay awesome cool so so the the question i love to ask right before we get into the random round is that it is 100 years in the future what do you want to be remembered for yes well i have discovered a new symmetrical object in kind of high dimensional space which has connections to a completely different area of mathematics called elliptic curves and, and for me i'm already so proud of that new discovery uh, i've already talked about fantasizing about having it on my gravestone or maybe a tattoo with this and, and i i think it 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 completely changed the way we looked at 
these particular bit of mathematics. So for me, I, I the lovely thing is that mathematical proof will mean that that's true a hundred years from now. Um, it won't be superseded by a, a new kind of way of doing things. So, so I think I have the chance that that will be the thing that I will be remembered for in a hundred years time. Absolutely love that. I, I did want to talk to you about that. You know, the, the fascination with, with prime numbers and symmetry, but we'll have to save that for another time. Uh, for another yeah. time. So let's go ahead and jump right into the random round where we go to a random question generator. We'll do just a couple questions out of here. First question is, what was your best birthday? I went when I was about 12 years old to a Chinese restaurant with uh, my parents and some American friends of mine, my parents, and it was, there was a band at the Chinese restaurant and they played happy birthday to me. And, and that was just like so amazing that, you know, the whole restaurant heard me playing that knew it was my birthday. And I think I actually planned from that point, you know, this is the best birthday ever. What's my next birthday going to be? So I sort of started planning what all the other birthdays are going to be. But I, I think that one, I just still remember that amazing experience of the band playing happy birthday to me. Uh, how old were you at that birthday? I think about 12 or something. Yeah. Awesome. What's the worst movie you've ever seen? I, I really, what's the worst movie I've ever seen? Gosh. I, I can imagine the movie and I can't remember what it's called. It's the Austin Powers. That's it. That's, oh, yes. I, I just cannot stand yeah. it. Just, just doesn't do it for me. Austin Powers. Yes, you did. You did mention Austin Powers in, in, in one of these two books that, that you just absolutely hated that movie. Exactly. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Last one here. What would you do on a free afternoon in the middle of the week? I would practice my cello. I'm trying to learn the cello at the moment. And if I've got a sneaky free afternoon, I will get my cello out and do a bit of practice. And in fact, just before I came on air with you, I had my string quartet rounds that I formed called the Fursby Quartet. So, so I've just been playing the cello, which has put me in a very good mood to talk to you. And uh, as you talk about in your book, Thinking Better, there really is no shortcut to learning to play the cello, right? You just no, you've got to just got to put it in there. Hours, yeah, interesting because you've got to change your body. It's you know that muscle memory, and that that just takes time. Professor Dusatoy, how how can people connect with you? Where can they find you online? I'm very active on Twitter, so people can follow me there. I'm at Marcus Dusatoy. I have a website in Oxford. It's simoni.ox.ac.uk, and I try and put a lot of my projects up. Uh, there so i think those are the, the the two best ways to interact with what i'm doing i'll definitely be sure to link to those in the show notes thank you so much for taking time at your schedule to be on the show today i appreciate having you here yeah it was really fun talking with you and my friends remember you've got one life on this planet why not try to do something big cheers everyone